definitely a, a fun, exciting week here uh, this last week. I know um, I just enjoyed the energy in the building. I can't say VBS week is my most productive week in terms of getting a lot of things done in my office or visiting people and stuff, but it's always a fun, energetic week. And I think this last week was especially special in terms of VBS's the last few years, just as we saw so many uh, children from unchurched families involved, and, and including coming to the family fun night. We'd estimate probably around 50% of the people at the Family Fun Night weren't from Freedens. And so it's just been a very exciting week here. I'm uh, just glad to be able to give you a little taste of it this morning. Now I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this morning's message. Our Father, we thank you that you're God who longs to work in people's lives. Lord, we thank you for your work here, uh, through in and through Freedens, through the many volunteers, through your gospel, through your word this last week, Lord. We thank you for bringing so many people to VBS and the Family Fun Night. And Lord, we pray that the impact of what took place this last week will not end with this last week, will not end with just good memories, but that it will continue, that you will cause your gospels, cause the good news of Jesus Christ to sink deeply into the hearts of those who are here, and that you will cause growth. Uh, that will lead to eternal life change. And now, Father, as we open Scripture this morning, as we look into Acts chapter 19 to see what you were doing 2,000 years ago, we pray that you will bring it home to us today to help us to see how the gospel takes precedence over every single other thing in this life. And it gives life to us in a way that nothing else ever can. So we pray for your guidance and blessing in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've ever been to a graduation service, uh, you know that one of the main elements of these services, as you see graduates walking across the stage and re- receiving their diplomas, one of the main elements is the graduation speech. And the speech to graduates that oftentimes follows a very uh, similar format in most graduation speeches. Normally, the speech is talking about, okay, if you work hard and you believe in yourself, then you will be able to achieve your dreams and change the world in the process. If you've been to a graduation, odds are good, you heard a message that was somewhere along those lines. Sometimes, though, the graduation speeches are a little bit different than that typical mold. Sometimes speeches are a little bit more cynical or sarcastic, taking a negative view of things and kind of grates on people a little bit. Other times, though, graduation speeches are very thought-provoking, even refreshing in the message that they share. Well, back in 2005, in uh, what's called Kenyon College in Ohio, there was one of these graduation speeches that was more thought-provoking. It was given by a man named David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, if you don't know his name, is an award-winning uh, novelist uh, from America. He, uh, he's probably not a Christian, but this, this graduation speech that he gave was very thought-provoking and it had some parts of it that I think Christians can definitely affirm and agree with. And unfortunately, David Foster Wallace, a few years after this in 2008, committed suicide. Um, but the message that he had that day, I think, still pertains a lot to us. And this, I'm going to read a portion of it that comes from probably the latter third of his speech that day. But he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. 
And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, as I said, we don't have any indication that David Foster Wallace was a Christian, but I think as Christians, we can definitely affirm a lot of the truths in here. Biblically speaking, if you wanted to attach a biblical term to what he's saying of this worship of all kinds of different things, that word would be idolatry. Idolatry is pretty much when we place an ultimate sense of value on anything other than God. And as David Foster Wallace says, in our culture, even in our own lives, we can worship many other things besides the one true God. Let me give you a picture of one of the things that, that has been a very stronghold in my life in terms of an idol that I worshipped for a number of years. It was my truck, which you may have heard of my truck before. Um, had it for 17 years, got it when I was 17 years old, so I had it for half of my life. And this truck was quite literally an idol to me. Now you may wonder, okay, how do you know it was an idol? Maybe you're overreacting here a little bit. Well, let me describe my relationship with my truck, especially for the first few years that I had it. I did have a relationship with my truck. And like I said, I pretty much idolized that truck in terms of I put every penny I had into it to pay for it. And then after it was paid for, kept putting every penny I had into it to modify it, to make it look different and run different than your average Dodge Ram that you'd see out there on the street. I, I literally wanted people to identify that truck with me. When I was very proud of that truck. I was happy when people saw me driving it up and would, would say, Brandon, that's a really nice truck, cool truck. And, and I coddled that truck like it was a newborn baby. I mean, I'd, I'd wash it, I'd wax it literally every week uh, for, for quite a while after I got it. I bought this truck cover, um, which is custom made for my style of Dodge Ram. That it takes, you know, five, eight, ten minutes to put this cover on. But I'd put it on every single night so that no tree droppings would get on it, no bird droppings. You, you laugh at this. <laughs> this is reality, though. It's reality in my life, though. If a storm was coming, I would, I would convince my parents to let me move their vehicle outside <laughs> so I could put my truck in the garage so that nothing would happen to it. I would get all bent out of shape when our cat would be on top of our truck, uh, on top of my truck. Um, whenever I'd haul something in the bed of the pickup truck, you know that the bed of pickup trucks is made for hauling stuff? But I would put a tarp down so that we wouldn't scratch the bed of the pickup truck. This is what the truck meant to me. Literally, it was an idol. I was not, I mean, I, I didn't use that term back then, but I put my sense of worth, my sense of identity, my sense of significance in a large way in that truck. Now, I definitely looked to other things, too. I was looking to my athletic accomplishments, to, to being smart in school, um, to my stereo. Uh, I, I looked at a lot of other things, too, and now it's kind of humorous when you look at my infatuation with that truck. But the reality is that's classic idolatry. It's when we are putting a sense of significance or worth or identity in something besides God. And I think we can laugh about this attachment to a truck or something else kind of superficial like that. But the reality is if we dug into each one of our lives, whether it's in the past or even today, we'd probably find that we have similar cases of idolatry in our lives. Maybe a little bit more sophisticated than a simple truck but it's still there. 
This morning, I'd like, to, I'd like us to turn to a passage in Acts chapter 19. So if you brought a Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. We're in Acts chapter 19, towards the latter part of a series called Turning Points. Turning Points is looking at the early church through the book of Acts. And we're asking, okay, what were the key events and the significant shifts that accelerated the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, spread like crazy there in those first few decades after the time of Christ. We're looking at what caused the gospel to spread so quickly and so effectively. And today's turning point is that the gospel confronts idolatry. The gospel seeks to confront idolatry, to, to really take the place of all the idols that are in culture and in our individual lives and, and we describe ourselves here at Freedoms as a gospel-centered community. And to be gospel-centered, that means that the gospel has to be central to everything we do as individuals and as a church. That means that any truck, any sort of accomplishments, anything else we look to as idols needs to be displaced so that the gospel can be central. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And our passage takes place in a city called Ephesus. Today, Ephesus just consists of a set of ruins. But back then, Ephesus was a, was a bustling major metropolis. It was the, one of the most significant cities in what is known as Asia Minor, uh, the Asian part of the Roman Empire. Today we call that Turkey. It was a port city, and it was the main port city on the, on the main travel route between Greece or, and Rome and then Asia Minor. And so it was, a, it was a bustling metropolis, very successful. It was growing like crazy. Like I said, if you went to look at it today, it would simply be ruins, but it's one of the most extensive, uh, impressive set of ruins that you can find from that era. I mean, it's simply amazing to see what is there. And so we're looking today at what's taking place when the gospel reaches Ephesus. I want to pick up the passage in, in chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. It says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is simply another way to refer to, the, to Christians or Christianity. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So we see that according to Paul's normal uh, custom when he entered a city, he went to the synagogue. He told the Jews about Jesus the Messiah. But we see that a number of the Jews started pushing back pretty hard. So he went to what's called the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know anything about Tyrannus except for his name. He, well, it, it's described as a lecture hall. So evidently he was some sort of teacher. And the word Tyrannus means, it's kind of like Tyrannosaurus Rex, it means dictator or tyrant. And so we don't know if, if his parents gave him that name, Tyrannus. That would be kind of sad. Um, or maybe his students gave him the name. He's kind of like a dictator or a tyrant as he teaches. But anyway, he has this lecture hall. And, and in that culture, during, in the heat of the middle of the day, the city would basically shut down. But Paul used that time very effectively to teach in the hall of Tyrannus. He would uh, engage in tent making, which was his trade. He would engage in tent making in the mornings and then later afternoons and evenings. Then, the, then in the heat of the day, when the city was slowing down, when the Hall of Tyrannus was available, Paul would be there teaching about the gospel. He would be asking questions of people to, to pull truth and, and realities out of them. He would be answering questions. And as he engaged in this for over two years, the gospel was expanding. 
I mean, it was expanding not just in Ephesus, but in all the surrounding regions as well, because Ephesus was such a center um, of commerce and, and of trade and of relationships there in that region. And so we see that the gospel was deeply impacting Ephesus there. And if you read the, the verses following, verses 8 through 10, we see that, that great miracles were taking place, uh, that more and more people were turning to Christ. I want to jump ahead to middle of verse 17 where we see the power of the gospel at work. It says that the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of those scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So this is just an amazing scene. You see that the gospel is working powerfully, and, and there are some people who are being convicted of their sin. And so they come out and they publicly begin to confess their sin to others. And you have this group of people who evidently have been Christians for a little while, but they've been trying to mix their Christianity with their previous way of life. And they're incompatible with each other. And they begin to recognize that because they'd been practicing sorcery and witchcraft. And they had all these scrolls that were worth a lot of money to people who would buy them. And they realized, you know what, these are completely incompatible with the gospel. And so they decided to make a break from that idol of that witchcraft. And they took all those scrolls, they made a big pile and had a massive bonfire out there. I think that's so impressive. They could have sold them for a lot of money. 50,000 drachmas is a ton of money. A drachma was a silver coin that would be the wage for a common laborer for one day's work. So 50,000 drachmas is a lot of money. They could have sold them and made a lot of money, but they realized these are idols. These are going to trip people up. They're going to pull people away from God if we sell them. So we're just going to burn them. And this was how passionate they were for Christ. They wanted Christ to be first and foremost in their lives. Now, when the gospel begins to take root in a culture, some people begin to feel threatened. And that's what happened here in this culture. Look with me to verse 23. It says, About this time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only to, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So we see here a man named Demetrius brings a concern forth. He is a silversmith. He may be kind of the head of the, 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 the whole group of silversmiths there. Um, and there's a whole industry of idolatry that has arisen around this goddess Artemis. Artemis was the goddess in that culture, Greek goddess of fertility and of hunting. You have a nice mix there that can appeal to both men and women. She was oftentimes pictured with either a, a hunting dog or with the deer, as you can see right up there. And there's this massive temple there in Ephesus uh, devoted to Artemis. Ephesus saw themselves as the guardian 
of Artemis. And they saw themselves that way because at some point in their history, a meteorite fell from the sky and landed near Ephesus. And they thought, oh, the meteorite looks like the image of Artemis. Artemis must be highly favoring us. We need to guard the the cult or the, the, the worship of Artemis. And so they built this massive temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's no longer there today because it was destroyed, but it was massive. It was the largest building in the Roman Empire at that time. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. I mean, the Parthenon's a pretty good-sized building. This Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was four times that size. And there was a massive industry that had built up around the, the idolatry of Artemis. And it included these silversmiths and other craftsmen who built little shrines, little models of the temple, little models uh, like you see up there of this goddess Artemis. And they made a lot of money off of them. Now it's interesting to see um, what Demetrius says here. It's kind of funny because he says, Paul says that the man-made gods are no gods at all. And I have to wonder, what was going through, through Demetrius' mind here? There are really a couple of options. We aren't really sure. But neither option really reflects all that well in Demetrius. On one hand, he's saying, well, um, Paul thinks that we aren't making gods, but we actually are. When we're putting together the silver and hammering it out and stuff, we're actually making gods. And I think about that, and okay, it may have made sense to them. But, but how strange is that to think that you can take a piece of silver or a lump of clay or a stone, and as you begin to work with it, somehow it transforms into a god. I don't quite understand that. But maybe that's what he thought, that Paul's saying these, man, these man-made gods that we're making, they aren't gods at all. Or maybe, maybe Demetrius recognizes, you know what, it's only silver, it's only stone, but we're busted. Because Paul, Paul's calling us on the fact that all this is silver and stone, and we're selling it as, as gods. But either way, Demetrius proceeds with his way, the, the way he's been going. He says, you know, we need to stop this. And we see, it's interesting what happens next, that, that he's really trying to make money. I mean, that's what his idol is here. He says, men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. His idol here that he's worshiping is money. He spiritualizes it by later on saying, well, the danger is not only that our trade will lose its good name and we're going to lose business, but then the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and she herself will be cast aside. So he spiritualizes this idol, but the root idol that he has there is money. And I think it's important that we take a little time out here to talk about how the gospel confronts culture because that's what's taking place here in this passage. Oftentimes we think of idolatry as something of the past or something that takes place only in other cultures. Because, you know, I doubt any of us have a mantelpiece or an altar in our house in which we have little carved idols that we bow down to or that we pray to or that we burn incense to as a form of worship. Odds are good that none of us have that in our house. We need to recognize that idolatry goes far beyond just bowing down to little figurines of, made of ivory or, or wood or stone or silver or stuff like that. Idolatry is any time that we worship anything besides God. And worship literally means worth-ship. So when we're worshiping something, it means we're attributing worth to it. And just as I was doing with my truck for a number of years in my late teens and early 20s, it's so easy for us to attribute worth, uh, a sense of ultimate worth, 
in terms of our identity and significance and security to attribute that worth to things other than God. And that is idolatry. Now, let me give you a few questions that are helpful diagnostic tools for understanding what may be the idols in our life or in our culture. One question is this. What do you dream about? This isn't just at night, but it's in daydreams. What is the recurring thought that comes to your mind when you think about uh, your life, where you hope it plays out in the future? Maybe it's achievements you hope to get. Maybe it's a way that you hope your job plays out. Maybe it's a dream about some certain spouse that you hope comes your way or something. The things we dream about could be indicators of idols that we are placing an inordinate amount of worth in. Second question is, what causes you the most disappointment in terms of anger and frustration? If there's something that repeatedly just causes you to lose your cool, to get incredibly depressed or frustrated, there's a decent chance that that may be an indicator of some sort of idol that you have in your life. Or thirdly, where do you turn when you hurt, when you are depressed, when you are frustrated, when you are lonely? Where do you turn? Because the things you turn to may, in a practical sense, be what you're looking to for salvation and for comfort when God himself should be the one that we turn to. Now, when we look at our American culture, uh, really, our American culture is kind of like an idol-making factory. Um, We are great at making idols here in America uh, that that people like to bow down to. Uh, I I think of three main categories of idols. I'm sure there are probably others. Uh, You could categorize them other ways if you wanted. But but three main categories that come to my mind are are one, pleasure. Pleasure in terms of of sexual pleasure, in terms of food. I mean, America, um, I mean, we are probably the most obese nation in the world. We easily idolize food. Food is one of those things that, that many people turn to for a sense of comfort. I think of hobbies. I mean, all these things, you, you, hopefully you're seeing a lot of idols aren't really bad things in and of themselves. I mean, hobbies, food, sex, these aren't bad things. But the problem comes when we elevate them in our minds to a level that they shouldn't be elevated to. We should enjoy these things but not give our sense of worth and significance and identity to those things. Another category of of idolatry that I see is success. This is a huge one. I mean, success can look a number of different ways. We can seek to be successful financially, of wanting to build our 401ks, of wanting to build our savings accounts, of uh, wanting to have more possessions that money can buy. In fact, in Colossians 3.5, Paul actually says greed is idolatry. It's idolizing money. The reality is money can't buy us happiness. And idolatry of money is not something that only afflicts people who are rich. Idolatry of money is probably just as prevalent in people who are just barely scraping by. Because idolatry isn't necessarily about how much you have. It's about your heart's attitude towards that thing. And many times people who are just scraping by... Are, are placing a sense of worth and a sense of, I have to have this in money. Um, just, and it's sometimes born out of just the reality. If I'm scraping by, I need more. But they, they place their sense of security and worth in how much they have. Power is another thing that can, is a part of success uh, of idolatry. Sometimes people say, well, I don't have a problem with idolatry. But I do kind of get nervous and anxious quite a bit. I worry a lot. Well, that can sometimes be an indicator of an idol, an idol of wanting to have power, 
an idol of wanting to be in control, that when we feel like we're out of control a little bit, then we get nervous. Really, you could trace pretty much every sin that we have back to some, some form of idolatry. I think also of vocation, how the things that we do in our jobs um, and, and wanting to climb the, the, the corporate ladder can, again, be a form of idolatry. This is one of those things that I think trips up a lot of pastors. Um, you know, pastors deal with idolatry just as everyone else does. And this vocational idolatry is one of the things that a lot of pastors really struggle with. I know it's something I've had to deal with a lot, and I'm sure I will continue to do so. Um, a number of months ago, someone recommended this book to me, or I came across it somewhere, called The Measure of Our Success, an impassioned plea to pastors. And it was a very refreshing book for me to read in terms of my sense of identity and significance as a pastor. And I want to read to you just a portion so you can kind of get a glimpse into how pastors can easily fall into idolatry. It says here in the first chapter, it says, As pastors, the greatest battle we face is not a battle against our ministries. It's the battle between our flesh and his spirit. Why do we really care so much about how many people showed up for church this past weekend? Why is one of the first questions we ask each other as pastors about the size of our churches? Why are the financial contribution numbers really so important? Are these things representative of our ability to make disciples? Or more about making budget and paying bills? And he goes on and asks a series of additional questions. And then he says, I believe that gut-level honest answers to many of these questions would often reveal that even though we preach against it, our ministries are often being driven by our flesh, not the Spirit. And then in this opening chapter of this book, he goes on to outline several different idols that pastors struggle with. The idol of affirmation, of wanting um, to be affirmed in the eyes of other pastors or of people. The idol of numbers. This is a really hard thing. Um, it, it's, it's very true that when you go to pastor's conferences and you're meeting other pastors for the first time, one of the first questions that's asked is, how big is your church? And I don't think it's done maliciously, but it's just something we naturally do. And if you're not careful, you end up um, measuring yourself or comparing yourself to others. Okay, if I pastor a larger church than them, I must be doing a little bit better. My church isn't as big. Well, they're a little bit further along than I am. And we measure ourselves in that way. He talks about the idol of approval, needing the approval of others, the pats on the back, the, hey, well done, pastor, that, that was a good sermon. Hey, good VBS this year. Those aren't bad things. The issue is our perspective on those things. It's not a bad thing to count numbers. You even look through the book of Acts, there are numbers listed all, all the time. 3,000 came to Christ that day, 5,000. The, the number of disciples grew daily. Numbers aren't bad. As with all these other idols that we're talking about, they're, they're fairly neutral things. It's just a matter of our attitude towards them. He also talks about the idol of fame, how pastors easily fall into this trap of wanting to be well-known among other pastors or among Christians. So vocation can be a major tripping stone for, for Christians in terms of idolatry or non-Christians. Sports is a big issue of success, both watching sports and participating in sports. Green Bay Packers. Um, I would not say that the Green Bay Packers aren't bad. They're not automatically an idol for everyone, but the Green Bay Packers easily can slip into a form of idolatry for us. 
as we focus too much on them. And as our sense of well-being, our sense of satisfaction in life rises and falls with how the Packers do. I grew up in Missouri. I grew up as a Kansas City Chiefs fan. One of the ways that I knew that I believed in God as a teenager was because pretty much the only time I prayed was during Kansas City Chiefs games. That's, that's one of the signs of an idol. That if, if the only thing you pray for is not that you'll grow closer to God or that you'll have a fruitful ministry, but that, you, um, that your football team wins or that your truck doesn't get wrecked in the hailstorm or, or that the stock market rebounds or that you will get the job promotion or that you'll find the right spouse. If those are the only things that you're really praying for, those could be signs of an idol. For me, I was praying for touchdowns when the Kansas City Chiefs would be down. When the Chiefs would lose a big game, I would be down for days, literally. I, I, would, I would I shed tears over a number of playoff losses that the Kansas City Chiefs had. These can be signs of idolatry when we get overly disappointed with something that really doesn't matter that much. Appearance is another form of success that we can easily idolize. Our physical appearance, how we look to others. Our religious appearance. Legalism can be a form of idolatry where we, where we worship religious rules, trying to build ourselves up and make ourselves look good and, and better than the others around us. And the thir- third category of idolatry that's prevalent in our culture is that of relationships. It's very easy for parents to idolize their children. Now, that may seem strange, but let me explain that. Where we idolize our children in terms of placing our sense of identity in how our children are doing. We want our children to be a success. And when our children are successful at school or at behaving well or at sports, then we feel a sense of affirmation. There's a healthy sense of pride in children, but it can also cross over into unhealthiness, especially if you, as a parent, try to live vicariously through your child. That's one of the reasons that we have parent-child dedications here at Freedens. And in parent-child dedications, parents stand before God and before the congregation and publicly commit themselves to saying, you know what, I am surrendering my child to God. They're not ultimately mine. I'm not going to idolize them. I'm not going to worship them. I'm not going to try to live my life through them. I'm not getting my sense of identity from them. They are God's, and I have the responsibility to raise them in a way that points them to God. We can also idolize relationships in terms of spouses, uh, in terms of boyfriends and girlfriends, in terms of wanting to be in the right friend group, the popular crowd at school. There are so many forms of idolatry out there, but the root of it, all these idolatries stand in, in, in competition with Jesus because the idols are, are asking for our ultimate allegiance, for a sense of security and identity and significance when that stuff should be coming from Jesus himself. Now back to David Foster Wallace. Right after he, he gave that little passage that I read earlier about everyone worships, he talks about um, how insidious idolatry really is. He says, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. So he's saying we live in a culture that is full of idolatry. And it's just our default setting that we naturally begin to slip into that as well. And we are unconsciously doing this. 
And so what he is doing in his speech is trying to call people to an awareness of, of how pursuing all these other things doesn't really lead to true life. But one of the things that we see is that when an idol is threatened, even though an idol can be hard to discern, you can always tell when an idol is threatened because there's strong pushback. And that's what we see happening next in this passage. And that's what we oftentimes see in our own lives as well, that we push back when an idol that we have is threatened. We, we, we come up with disappointment, anger, frustration. But look with me with what happens next in this passage, verse 28. When they heard this, meaning the other silversmiths and craftsmen, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to, to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I'll take a time out from reading this. This is kind of what it's like in a riot. Uh, the, the people don't really know why they're there. Some people do, but you kind of get this mob mentality when people are just going along. You think about, for instance, a couple of years ago in Vancouver after the Canucks lost the Stanley Cup finals, there's this massive riot that involved tens of thousands of people in Vancouver, caused millions of dollars in damage. I'll bet you that the vast majority of people involved in that riot didn't really know why are we rioting. They just got caught up in the mob mentality. That's what happens, and that's what was taking place here. It says that the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowds shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the Jews are trying to distance themselves from the Christians, saying, you know what? The Christians are the ones you should be going against, not us Jews. But the crowd wouldn't even hear that. They just keep shouting. It says, Then the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't the whole world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? That's a reference to the meteorite. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed their goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open at our, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for the, this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. What we see here is that when an idol is confronted, people always push back. That's what oftentimes happens. What, what takes place here is there's this massive uh, crowd of people who is gaining momentum as people are shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they all rush into this massive temple, or not temple, a massive theater. If you went to Ephesus today, you could still see that theater. It, it can see over 20,000 people. And, and what happened there was people gathered in that theater and were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were pushing back really hard when their idol was confronted. And that's what people do when idols are confronted. That's why we get so disappointed, so angry, uh, so depressed, so frustrated when our idols are pushed on a little bit. So we have a question. Okay, 
how do we apply this? What do we do with this in our lives? Well, idolatry is very real in our culture and in our lives. And like I said earlier, if we want the gospel to play a significant role in our church, in our lives, in our culture, it's important that, that, that we are active in helping the gospel to, to get rid of the idols that are around. Because as long as the idols are on the throne of our lives, the gospel never will be. And we look at, okay, how can we do this? Well, I think the best way is to focus more and more on Jesus, become more and more infatuated with him. And as we do so, those idols will fade in comparison. There, there was a, a famous sermon given by Thomas Chalmers back in the 1800s called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, it, expulsive is not the same as explosive. Explosive is when things blow up. Expulsive means that you expel something from your midst. Think about expulsion in a school. I remember when I was in school, you'd hear, oh, so-and-so is on suspension right now. And you always knew the next step after in-school suspension was out-of-school suspension. The next step after that is expulsion. They're expelled from school. And what Thomas Chalmers was talking about is that when you, your affection level for Jesus raises, when your passion level for Jesus goes up, the other idols are going to be expelled from your life. That's what happened earlier in Acts 19 when these people who had been practicing, practicing sorcery burned their scrolls. They became so amazed with Jesus because it said the name of Jesus was held in high honor that people were fearing Jesus, falling more in love with him. They were motivated to get rid of the idols. We have to do that because as David Foster Wallace said, we'll all worship something. If we just try to get rid of an idol but not replace it with something else to focus on, we'll inevitably end up worshiping something else, another idol. So we need to focus ourselves on Jesus. But as we get rid of the idols in our lives, we are given a great testimony to the world around us about prioritizing Jesus as we deprioritize the idols. In college, later in college, I ended up developing what I call my truck testimony. Um, I, my degree from my last couple of years I graduated with was automotive engineering. And we worked a lot on our own vehicles, just testing them and doing various stuff in the automotive lab. So I'd oftentimes have my truck in there, and inevitably people would come up and say, that's a nice truck, cool truck, dude, stuff like that. And, and I found that I actually could develop, I could turn that right to the gospel. Because I could say, you know, I used to idolize this truck. And I would go through that whole rigmarole about um, all the things I used to do with the truck. And I mean, they were car guys. They could see, okay, that truck has been well taken care of. That's cool that zero sixty time dropped to second and a half as you put some stuff in it. Yes, it looks really cool. But then I could talk, you know, I, put, I used to put such a sense of significance and identity in that truck that I realized the truck eventually is going to rust. It's going to be sitting in a junkyard. It can't ultimately support that sense of value that I'm putting in it. Only Jesus can do that. And then we talked about Jesus. And it was, it was really cool to, to be able to transition to the gospel from talking about the truck, from talking about the idol. And one of the things I found out is that in addition to raising that passion for Jesus, I had to change my view of the truck. I, I, my view of the truck went from being an idol to being a servant. That's really the way vehicles and, and so many other idols should be. They're, they're more servants to help us to enjoy God and serve others rather than uh, worshiping those things. One of the ways it was a servant that helped me loosen my, my grip on it was that a lot of my friends knew where the spare key was in the truck. And I gave them free permission, use the truck when you need to. They'd use it every week to haul stereo equipment to our, our weekly meetings of our, of our campus ministry. 
there would be times I'd be out uh, walking home from campus or driving around uh, town with, in a friend's vehicle. I'd be like, oh, there goes my truck. <laughs> um, hear stories of what they're doing in my truck. And anyway, it became a servant. That helped loosen my grip on it. And it gave a testimony of the power of the gospel. My prayer is that as we go through our own lives, as we are holding out the gospel of those around us, that we will not be shy about pointing out how idols cannot ultimately fulfill us. Only Jesus can. That we hold out the gospel and point to how Jesus wants to be on the throne. When he isn't, nothing else will ultimately satisfy us. But when he is, we will have satisfaction in life and an identity and significance, purpose and security that will never fade. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you want to be on the throne of our lives. We also know that we so easily put so many other things there and we just kind of fall into that because of the culture that we live in, because of our sinful nature. Lord, I pray that you will help us to identify the idols that are in our lives and give us the grace and the strength we need to push them aside and to focus wholeheartedly on Jesus. Lord, we know that this is something that can only happen as we are transformed from the inside out. Because if we just try to do it through our own strength, it's not going to work. But I pray that you will help us, Lord, to make you our uttermost priority in our hearts first and foremost. And that that will be evident to all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.